it's very helpful for the previous speakers to say almost all the things that I said in my first two pages. But they didn't say that I'm extremely grateful to be asked to speak today. It's a great pleasure to do so. And uh, I obviously congratulate the Manorial Documents Register for its achievements. I think the only thing that hasn't been said about its origins and development is the role of the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts. And uh, I first encountered the Manorial Documents Register as a paper record in a wonderful building called Quality Court in Chancery Lane, which um, didn't take an hour on the tube to get to from St Pancras or Euston. You could walk it, walk it and it was therefore a very convenient place. But of course, the, the new version, the new electronic version of the Manorial Documents Register is bigger and better than the one that was available on paper. Right. It's already been said that these records provide us with a unique insight into the life and thinking of people of all kinds uh, between the, the 12th and the 16th century in particular. That's the period that, if you like, I know about. And no general interpretation of the social and economic history of that period is complete unless it draws on these sources. The evidence is contained in surveys, and rentals, lists essentially of tenants, in uh, accounts, manorial accounts, annual documents in which the local officials, usually a reeve or bailiff, that tells you about the f financial developments of the, of the year, and the court records that we all call court rolls. I will touch on surveys but I'm, I will focus on court rolls, so I, I'm afraid I'm not going to say very, uh, almost anything about accounts. Now, these can be approached in many different ways and can throw light on many themes. In the last year, I've encountered people doing studies of bastardy in a, uh, a Staffordshire village in the 14th century. Measures throughout the Middle Ages to control flooding in villages in the valleys of the Severn and Trent. An assessment of the number and quality of buildings used to house animals and an analysis of migration. All of these things can be based on, not exclusively on manorial records, but manorial records can make a very important contribution to understanding those subjects and many more. There's no dark corner of medieval life which cannot be illuminated with the aid of manorial records. You need skill to tease meaning out of dry and apparently dull and repetitive documents. I will look at three themes. Oppression, village community and government, and everyday life, where I will focus on relationships within communities. So I'll begin with oppression. I was brought up to see manorial documents as instruments of control and exploitation. This view is not wrong, but it is one dimension of a much more complicated picture, as I'll show. To set out the argument, lords depended on landed estates, which combined land under their direct control and land being held by tenants who owed rents and services. It was a good policy 
of lords to list the tenants and their duties, and you get these lists of individual named tenants from the early 12th century onwards, and you tend to find them on big church estates. Later, this process of listing tenants continues into the 13th century, and, and it ends up with, uh, with rentals towards the end of the Middle Ages. As a result of this process, officials knew what they could expect to receive from each tenant, and the tenants couldn't dispute the authority of the document. Sometimes they're actually called doomsday, just to sort of reinforce the authority that lies behind the, the, the written record. I'm, I'm going to show you a series of examples, not too many, I hope, and I hope in print, in type, that's large enough to be read. I'm, I'm beginning with a document from uh, a famous church estate, Ramsey Abbey, and uh, quite a famous manor, King's Ripton. So many of these records, these surveys, come from the big church estates, so uh, that's entirely typical. King's Ripton, as its name implies, had been a royal manor which was given to uh, Ramsey in the early 12th century. That meant that its tenants enjoyed certain privileges. The, the king protected them from increases in rents and services. They were, if you like, privileged tenants, uh, and privileged tenants, as they would have said in the Middle Ages if they'd had the word, are stroppy tenants, tenants who cause trouble, who uh, look after themselves and try to defend their, defend their position. Now, what the document tells us is the source of information. I, I hate these little red spots, but I hope you can see, this, see it. But the first two lines tell you the, how the the survey was made. It was made with information, with evidence provided by Hugh the Reeve, Humphrey of Colville, Simon, son of Eowyn. And the word inquisition implies that this is uh, an inquiry held on oath. These three swore to tell the truth and to provide evidence to possibly a court, possibly just a group of the Lord's administrators. And they, th this is a typical survey because it tells you the name of the tenant, Nicholas Lestorker, is holding a yard land, which is about 24 acres of arable land, plus meadow and pasture and so on. It tells you the rent that he paid, rather a low rent, and it tells you about his services. And the, uh, In fact, it, the document goes on it, in its printed version in a page and a half telling you all the details of the of the services, you see that he has a ploughing service, he has to uh, bring his team of oxen uh, and plough and to plough a cilion, that's a strip of land uh, uh, in, the, in, in, in the demean land of the Lord, which will be presumably arranged as an open field. And uh, you see these, this description of obligations goes on, he gets holidays, rather generous holidays, I must say. Fifteen days at Christmas, fifteen at Easter and at Whitsunt. Uh, he, uh, on the other hand, as Mrs. May would say, it, a day is a day, you know, that uh, <laughs> if, he, if he works for a day, he's got to start uh, uh, for, at sunrise and, and carry on until sunset. And then there's a description, a more detailed description, of mowing services where 
he has to uh, turn up to mow, but he does get some ale provided by the abbot. Not very much ale, actually, between the tenants. This is a very characteristic custom that he can take some, some of the hay away with him at the end of the day, and the quantity is measured by the amount that he can balance on his scythe. And if the scythe breaks, then he can't, uh, he can't have it. What I want to, I'll come back to some of the complications of this survey. What I want to emphasize is that this is a useful, accurate, agreed definition of a holding, a tenancy, uh, and obligations. It's intended to provide an authoritative list of everything that this uh, person owes. But of course, there's room for argument. I mean, it says, it doesn't say in this section, but it says later on that when he does work in the harvest, he uh, is entitled to food, he is entitled to a, to a meal. A loaf, meat and ale. How big a loaf? What quality of loaf? How much meat? How much ale? What sort of ale? You know, you can uh, ask many questions, and, and they did. So the, uh, the survey is very valuable as a record, and of course it's a record, as we will see, which is available to the tenants as well as to the Lord. The Lord can look it up if there's some problem, a question of doubt, uh, but tenants have a, a, bit, a right to appeal to it as well. It's, well, it was, it was compiled probably at some sort of public occasion. These three informants were probably in front of their fellow villagers, so everyone knew it had happened and presumably it lived in the memory of the community for a long time afterwards. Now, these surveys were compiled at long intervals. The Lord needed a more up-to-date and continuous source of information, and that came from the accounts, which were a way of checking that uh, the, the manor was being run efficiently and, the, and, and the, the, the reed was being honest. And then there are the court rolls which tell you about changes in tenancy. So when, uh, when Mr. Stalker dies, succession of his son will be recorded in the, in the court roll. So there'll be a running record of, uh, of tenancy. And there are all sorts of other uses of the court, provides legal precedents, records of customs, and of course it uh, also serves to provide uh, information about income, about the profits of justice, uh, particularly the most profitable of all, the entry fines that new tenants paid to take on a new holding. People have compared these two various types of manorial records to still photographs, in the case of the of the survey, a record of the state of the manor at a particular point in time, and a movie film, which is provided by the accounts and the, and the court rolls, a moving, a moving image of, of life on the manor. So, the main purpose of keeping manorial records was to maintain the lords to control, to ensure efficient collection of revenues, to know who the tenants were, what they owed, and so on. You could see them as an assertion of authority, but there's also an element of defensiveness about them. The records are there to preserve and protect the Lord's uh, rights, as, as we will see. And of course, one should say, before moving on, the, 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 the before moving on, that of course, this tendency to keep records 
in, in, in the course of government is something that was general in society, particularly in the 13th century. Most of the manorial court roles we have begin in the 13th century. The, the earliest accounts begin in the 13th century. And of course, that's when the royal government is, is systematically keeping its records. And it's when the bishops start keeping registers. So it's, uh, it's not just the manor, but it's the state and the church are also involved in this record-keeping process. Now, one of... I'm, I'm continuing with my theme of oppression. Of course, the court dealt with fa people who failed to do their duty, who did not comply with the rules, who didn't pay the re their rent or didn't do their services. Now, here we come to the second. This is an extract from a court roll of King's Ripton, in 1293, and uh, you'll see there are three people who are reported not to have come to the Lord's ploughing. One of them is called John Stalker, presumably the son or grandson of the, the stalker that we've seen, we've seen already. You've got to imagine this record telling us about a session of a court with the Lord's steward presiding over it uh, as, a, as almost as a judge, but uh, uh, with before him, if, you, if, if I was the steward and you are, you are the tenants, you are gathered together and it is your job to observe what is going on and to report information for the use of the court. So everyone is involved in the court procedure. The difference between you and the people attending the court is that you've volunteered to come here. Uh, attendance at the manor court is compulsory on tenants, and if you don't turn up, you have to pay money. So information is provided, perhaps in this case by the reeve, that these three haven't done their ploughing. Then John, son of William, was attached by a pledge. That means that John Dyke and Nicholas in the Nook guaranteed that he, he attended and that uh, he was also ordered sometimes to make a, pay a penalty, make a penalty. Uh, he didn't come to the Lord's ploughing. Now John comes to the court and says that he has no beast of his own so that he can plough openly borrowing beasts. And he alleges that as long as he borrows beasts for ploughing, he means for ploughing his own land, his, you remember, his yard land of 24 acres, he is not bound to do any ploughing for the Lord. And for this he puts himself on the register of Ramsey. That means he is appealing to the written record that we've just seen. And the register should be consulted by the next court. Well, it's not just the court that can consult the register. We can do it as well. What does the register say? It says he will plough for one day with as many heads, ploughbees, as he has in his plough team. It doesn't say that he owns could see how the lawyers could make an absolute field day out of the meanings of words, you know, that uh, in fact, of course, one can imagine a situation in which the whole village is borrowing oxen from one another, so none of them need do ploughing at all. <laughs> and of course, it is a very common custom within villages for there to be practice of coeration. That means people bringing the plough beasts together, lending and borrowing these animals in order to make up a full plough team. So this is really telling us not just about 
Mr. Williams' quarrel with the Lord. It's also telling us about you know, the normal practices that go on within the village. So that's the sort of value that you get out of, uh, out of, out of these records. So it's telling us about relations between tenants as well as between the Lord. But of course it's also telling us about stroppiness. Yes. The point being, of course, that there are actually four of them doing this, uh, not turning out to plough, and presumably they're all using the same reason. So in other words, it's a test case. John William is not just stroppy, he is also a leader of a group of tenants who are saying that they are not uh, liable to plough if they don't own their plough beasts. And there are 29 others, according to the survey, who are in this same category. So he, if you like, is a spokesperson for a larger group of tenants. You can say that lordship is based on coercion, that courts and their records are instruments of control. But it's not naked coercion. It's not coercion in which a, a sullen, unproductive workforce is forced under threat of violence to do their work. The Lord creates the notion of a contractual relationship. He creates an uh, impression of fair play in which the tenant can appeal against the Lord's, the, the, the Lord's rules. In which, uh, and also notice how neighbourly pressure is used on uh, tenants who fall out of line. John Dyke and Nicholas in the Nook are being used by the court to bring pressure to bear on John Williams. So the, the court is um, based on coercion, but it's also using, exploiting, if you like, neighbourly pressure. It's uh, implementing a show of justice and pressure from neighbours, a clever form of coercion. Uh, which is more likely, in fact, to be win over people to do their works willingly. Let me press on. I just there's a bit which I'm now going to sort of summarise very briefly in my talk, in which I was going to emphasise how lords used very extreme language to show that they were in authority, that they had almost unlimited power over one category of tenant, that is the serf, the unfree, of which in the 13th century accounted for about 40% of, of the rural population. And they weren't allowed to appeal to a royal court. The only court that they attended was the, was the lords. And the lords boasted that he could take money from them uh, at will, that he could uh, tallage them high and low, in other words, demand a tax as high or, or low as he wished, and uh, demand labour services without notice. And I think behind that bravado, statements like, you own nothing but your bellies, used by an abbot of Burton-on-Trent, is a way of saying, you know, your property belongs to me. You don't own property if you're a serf. It belongs to the, to the Lord. That sort of bravado, I think, is really expressing a certain amount of doubt and unease on the part of lords who realise that their position is not so strong and that they have to be wary of the state, they have to be wary of the tenants, and they have rivals in other courts and other jurisdictions who are challenging them. And I now want to 
move on to an example of such a problem facing the uh, another church lord, I'm afraid, another monastic lord, the abbot of Winchcombe, who has this, uh, this uh, manor of Admington. And in 1341, you get the, the sort of uh, record that um, Paul Harvey was referring to, a record written in, as if in the days of telegraphs, you know, you, you, you wrote very economically, uh, used the minimum of words, the clerk is uh, just putting down the absolute minimum uh, and uh, therefore providing us with very little help at all in understanding what's going on. There's a penalty of 100 shillings is mentioned. Robert Jackman, Jacken, is it would be how he'd be pronounced, a serf, with a yard land. At Abington, the yard land was 40 acres, not 24. As a, that he remove Alice's maidservant, by whom he is defamed, and for retaining her, he lost the Lord's chattels, as is said, under a penalty of 100 shillings. In other words, he'll have to pay 100 shillings, if five pounds, if he doesn't sack Alice, his servant. Just for those of you who might like a bit of help as to what five pounds means, I recommend always a multiplier of 5,000. So this, this penalty he is facing is 25,000 pounds in modern terms. So it's quite a lot. Well, I think that's a lot of money anyway. <laughs> he was not convicted. He was not convicted by the fault by his neighbours. Now, what on earth does all that mean? Let me tell you a story. Jacken was one of the wealthier villagers. Robert Jackham was a, one of the wealthier villagers in, uh, in Admington. He had a yard land of about 40 acres. He's probably a widower, so he employs a maid to do the sort of work his wife would have done, housekeeping, cooking, look, gardening, uh, looking after the pigs and poultry, brewing, dairying, you know, just a few little tasks. But because she was living in, I take it much younger than him, there would be gossip. Now, Admington is under the lordship of an abbot, but the abbot's control of the place is entirely in a secular capacity. Quite separately, Admington comes under the jurisdiction of church courts. In this case, it would be a rural dean functioning under an archdeacon. Representatives of each parish would report on breaches of morality in their parish, or in the case of Abington, the chapelry of Abington. And if they suspected fornication, they would report it to the church court. If that happened, Robert would have been given some humiliating penance to perform. You know, standing in his shirt in the churchyard, with a lighted candle in his hand, that sort of uh, public humiliation. And he, um, he would prefer to pay money, so he pays money. And that's the bit the Lord doesn't like, you see. He lost the Lord's chattels. That means that he paid money, from his own pocket, of course, uh, to the church court, but the Lord of the manor thinks that's his money because serf's property belongs to him. The Lord obviously regards the matter very seriously because uh, of this enormous penalty. The steward, presumably, acting on behalf of the Lord, wants to deter other people from uh, such bad conduct. He doesn't really care. Uh, sorry, 
perhaps I'm here fantasizing a bit, I don't think the Lord or the steward really care about morality. What they're worried about is money. The church court's job is to look after morality. But it's a tremendous revelation of the sort of things that go on in villages. <laughs> you see, the neighbours say he's not guilty. You know, they say that he was led astray by this uh, young servant, female servant. You know, you can imagine what, what they're saying uh, about this uh, immoral girl disturbing the life of a respectable uh, uh, villager. Uh, so that's their take. I, I would love to hear it from Alice's point of view. I think she may well have been uh, one of the first proponents of the Me Too movement. <laughs> You can see all the sort of wonderful stories that can come out of a, a very almost impenetrable entry. Let's move on to something a bit more straightforward. I mean, one, one source of weakness for lords was their dependence on the tenants for running the manor. The reeve is a tenant. The jurors in the manor court are tenants. They have to win them over to participate and cooperate in the running of the manor and, and, its, and, and its court. They depend on them to present information, to, to tell, tell tales, you know. Usually that works quite well, but I wanted just to show how one can see in these surveys an element of negotiation between the tenant supplying the information and the lord who is recording it. All right, this all looks very factual, matter of fact. But we've already seen that that is, is surprisingly controversial. But uh, you also find, one suspect, that the lord is the person who is particularly anxious that the day should be as long as possible. You know, they are, the lord is speaking there. I'm sure the tenants, the three, three uh, peasants providing the information, wanted some, <laughs> some, some shorter working day, but they're told, no, no, it's got to be sunrise or sunset. I can imagine that being debatable. The holidays are a matter of debate as well. Uh, so you, you have this, um, uh, the Lord's voice emphasising the onerous nature of their duties, and you have the tenants pressing for the observance of feast days. And, of course, it will be the tenants who are particularly anxious to define the amount of hay that they can collect and so on. And the beauty of this is that it reveals to us a little village festivity. I imagine a circle of villagers, at the end of the haymaking day, I can imagine a circle of villagers all watching the contest as to who can lift the heaviest load of hay and their cheers when someone lifts an enormous quantity without breaking his scythe, and their laughter and groaning when someone fails. You know, it's, it's all part of the, of, of, of the festivity, and of course they're all drinking ale, so they're, you know, they're aided in their jollity. And I suppose, in fact, the Lord is willing to go along with this because he likes perhaps to be seen in a paternalistic role. It's one of those ways in which the... The, the sharp edge of lordship can be softened uh, if, he, uh, um, if, if he's able to uh, show himself benignly presiding over a, a, village, a village festivity. So I'm going to go through the next one very quickly, a case from Preston-on-Wye in Herefordshire. 
for which I thank the Manorial Documents Register because they asked me to launch the uh, help door, to help launch the um, the uh, Manorial Documents Register for Herefordshire recently, and that meant I had to do some rapid research on Herefordshire. Uh, this is a wonderful case of where you can see the the cooperation between lord and tenant breaking down, because uh, th this is a case of inheritance. This is 1316, in the middle of the, the Great Famine. People are dying. Uh, not necessarily of hunger, but of diseases perhaps associated with the, with, with the hunger. Nicholas Hake has died. Richard, his son, is the next heir. Then, and then you find that um, a man called um, John Hake has also died, and his uh, inheritance is claimed by a man with the wonderful name of Wygod Hake. But all the jurors say that Richard Hake has the better right to this land as well. I can't, I mean, I'm sure there are people here who know be better about inheritance customs. I don't quite see how this could be, but anyway, that's what they say. And then follows the denouement, so to speak. Again, you know now what 20 shillings means. Richard Forrester is immersed 20 shillings. In mercy, he's in mercy, he's, he's, he pays the immersement because he spoke with the jury of customary tenants. In other words, he did what in the Middle Ages was called labouring the jury. He took them on one side, gave them a few gallons of ale, persuaded them to presumably declare Richard Hake to be the heir. The Reeve is in mercy because he didn't keep his oath, his oath presumably to uh, defend uh, the truth and uh, right and so on. And uh, finally, you get the whole customary jury is in mercy for 40 shillings, a mere 10,000, because they would not agree on the verdict between Richard Hake and Wygod Hake. But it says above that they did agree. The villagers have been trusted by the Lord. They've been given the job of making decisions in difficult inheritance cases. You know, he's delegated to the villagers a, a difficult task. You know, it, it takes the weight off the Lord, who doesn't have to make difficult decisions himself. But then they, they are obviously biased, they're being bribed, they're being persuaded, they're coming uh, to the wrong conclusion, and so everything falls apart. The steward is absolutely furious and doles out these great penalties. But there's a wonderful bit at the end which says, these three immersements were condoned, in other words, they were cancelled, because they were immersed to frighten them. I mean, I've always suspected that to be the case of these very high uh, immersements and penalties. And in fact, it just says that there, that they're there to, uh, uh, to, to, frighten, to frighten them, and presumably some sort of peace is eventually restored. Uh, but it's uh, a moment of when, when things break down. I've just got a few minutes to, to say something about village government and about relations between tenants. Village government. We've seen lords and tenants working together in a, a cooperative but rather uneasy partnership. Lords and tenants actually were not the only ones involved because if the view of Frank Pledge was being held, usually once a year, sometimes twice a year, then all males over 12 were, were subject to its jurisdiction, the whole community, if you like. But uh, the, 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 all the males, at least, were involved. Oh, by the way, women were in the court uh, because uh, about one in 10, one in 12 of the tenants were usually women. So, so the, w the female presence was not entirely absent.
And you can see the way in which the purposes of the village and the purposes of the Lord and the manor coincide. For example, with the enforcement of the assize of ale. The Lord is in favour of limiting the, the, the extent to which people selling ale can pr make uh, profits from, from uh, you know, illicit profits from the sale of ale. So uh, he can benefit because he gets the immersements, he gets the, the money they pay. And also he likes to, I think, to oversee what is p a potentially a contentious area. But the tenants are, the villagers are also anxious to oversee an important part of, the, of village life and to protect consumers, you know, to regulate trade and protect consumers from, from profiteering on the part of unscrupulous ale sellers, many of whom were women, by the way, so it's the ale wives are the ones who are tending to overcharge. Now, there's a lot of business comes before the court which is concerned with the welfare of the community. Things like uh, cleaning ditches and uh, lopping trees and identifying undesirable, suspicious strangers and prostitutes and so on. The, all of these things, are these, these matters of regulation of the village are part of the business of the court. And you can see that the, here the, 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 the tenants, the suitors of the court, are defending their interests and uh, promoting their concerns about the quality of village life. And they're particularly concerned, of course, with the regulation of the fields. The lords, towards the end of the Middle Ages, are handing over their land to tenants. So they no longer have a direct interest in the harvesting of corn and so on, but the tenants have obviously continue to have that strong concern that, for example, the harvest should be conducted in a fair way. These are just a group of records from around about 1500 from the manor of Broadway in Worcestershire, which you may know as the most unpleasant collection of antique shops in the, <laughs> in the, on the planet, you know. But uh, there were no antique shops in 1500, thank heaven. What there was was a lot of corn and a lot of sheep. And what you see here is, here, the Lord's interest being defended. No one may henceforth use handmills, that's what lay querns are. The clerk couldn't think of the Latin word for handmill, Melendinum manualem, I think it should have said, but, but he couldn't think of that phrase, so he, say he uses a, a combination of French and English. So here the Lord is the one who wants to suppress the use of hand mills, though of course the millers will have an interest in that as well, so it's not just the Lord. But the others are very much a concern for the community. You can see here this concern for regulation of the right of people, the, actually not the right, the privilege of people to be able to collect green peas from the fields or to collect lean wheat. And they want to regulate that because they don't want the undeserving poor, as they be called in the 19th century, from having access to this source of free food. They want to help the poor, the, the community wants to help the poor, but to, to um, uh, get rid of frauds. And uh, here they're concerned with wains and heavy carts running over the fields. People buying, this, this is a reference to people buying rights to put animals on the common pasture. Outsiders, only Broadway people are allowed to put money, uh, put animals on the common pasture. 
uh, and these are outsiders. And uh, there's a, a, a one of these famous stints in which the, the a tenant is restricted by the number of animals that they can keep on the. And, and they're they're concerned with antisocial rich people putting on too many sheep. I just want to end by saying, as well as telling us about lordship and the relationship between lords and tenants, as well as telling us about the, the way in which the village community works through the manor court, there is obviously a huge amount of information, we've already seen it, about the interaction between villages and the way that comes up in the court. And this is the, uh, an extraordinary example, which having found and laboriously transcribed, I didn't want to uh, say, uh, not show you, this is uh, a manor called Tiberton in the middle of Worcestershire. Uh, it belongs, again, to another big monastic estate, Worcester Cathedral Priory. Here you can see litigation at work. I haven't mentioned that so far, but it's an important way in which the court can provide a service for the, the villagers, the, the peasants, by allowing them to bring cases uh, of, uh, to, to collect debts or to deal with trespasses. You know, pigs have strayed into your garden so you, you can sue your neighbour for compensation for that damage. Uh, so it, it's an important service that the, the, the court provides. It's a source of profit to the Lord because he can uh, take uh, immersements uh, as, the, as the process of litigation goes on. And it's a way in which the village can preserve good order and good relations among the villagers. Now, here is a whole series of accusations being made, cases being brought by John French against John Tandy. John Tandy has, has trespassed, according to these claims. He owes money, the princely sum of sixpence. He, uh, he, he trespasses with animals. Uh, and uh, as the case goes on, more and more cases involving John Tandy's misbehaviour, and then they swap over. John Tandy then starts suing John French. <laughs> he destroyed his wheat, he destroyed his wheat, he destroyed his wheat, he his pigs got into his peas, and, and so it goes on. Now, you, la you laugh. And, and I laughed in the record office when I read this. But one shouldn't, um, one shouldn't think this totally irrational. And I think I can explain what's been going on here, and that is that these two were partners. I think that the reason why they've got so many uh, accusations to bring against themselves, between themselves, is that French and Tandy were working together they were sharing land, sharing animals, sharing work. And the a relationship had gone on quite well. It involved land all over the village. You saw those field names and so on. But at the end of the day, they, they quarreled. So I've tried to show that these dull and repetitive documents with their telegraphic style and difficult language are taking us to the heart of a complex society. At first sight, the documents produced by these institutions uh, simply serve the interests of those in authority. But I hope that I've been able to show that there is a great deal of uh, participation in the government of the manor by the, the villagers, and we can learn a great deal about the way they manage their own communities and the way in which they work together, uh, and, and one can glimpse the combination of cooperation and friction within the peasant community. Thank you.
This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.